start. Be Real is brought to you by Converse College Low Residency MFA. Their two-year program features biannual residencies that nurture writers of fiction, poetry, nonfiction, and young adults, guiding them from first draft to publication. Converse has launched emerging writers like memoirist Sunel Barnes, novelist Sonia Condit, and award-winning poet Lisa Hayes Jackson. Visit www.converse.edu slash MFA for more information. Converse College Low Residency MFA. Your next book lives here. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to a genre-hopping movie-reviewing and reappraising podcast, Be Real. My name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And we're here today for a Shyamalan pod on the Playlist Podcast Network, of which we're very happy to be a part. Like, rate, and subscribe, all those wonderful things. Check out our fellow shows. But we have some twists and turns to get to, do we not, Noah? Absolutely. Tonight we will be your Shyamalan shamans. Hey, that's good. You've been sitting yeah. on that one all week? Not all week, just a couple of days. Yeah, let's let's attempt to do that. Because we are talking about the three movies that comprise what is now known to him, and at least someone who edits Wikipedia, as the East Rail 177 universe, right? I guess. I'm willing to meet you there, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, not on the train, we'll die. Um... Yeah, so if you don't know, there's a movie newly out this past weekend, Glass, which is the uh, the culmination of this cinematic universe that M. Night kind of built seemingly from nowhere that comprises uh, 2000's Unbreakable, 2017's Split, which at the very end of Split, you find out that like those two movies are connected, and now there's Glass, combining the three main characters from each of them, that's uh, Bruce Willis's David Dunn, Samuel L. Jackson's Elijah Glass, and James McAvoy's Kevin Wendell Crumb slash The Beast slash Hedwig slash 21 other people. And so, like, Split was a success, right? And Unbreakable was a success. Two successes in a career for a filmmaker that hasn't had, like, a ton of wins. Like, has had some notable wins, yes. but not, like, a ton of wins. I would just say that the... Uh, the mountain and the valley are very discreet for M. Night. I sometimes I forget all the time about Signs. Signs is a huge movie. So, I mean, he had done Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, and Signs, but then The Fall is just so, like, you just don't think you can go lower than The Last Airbender, can you? But then the, here comes After Earth. Right. I mean, I think that Lady in the Water is definitely worse than The Last Airbender. Really? Just and it's just like knowing kind of jokes about the genre movies, but also just like being so bad and having like the guy with that one really built arm mm. and just like a lot of allegory about writers and like the, the twisted stories they weave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like the way you put that. That is probably how he was thinking of it. But my bigger question for you, Chance, is like, is the pitch for Glass, the third installment, just that 
hey, two of my more successful films are tangentially linked because of a scene that I put at the end. Will will I be allowed to make third movie, please? I think so. Will uh, you give me nine million dollars? Yeah, <laughs> to enter a conversation. And I think part of the answer being yes is um, now it can enter a conversation about superhero movies because uh, Unbreakable, as we're going to talk about later with Zach Vasquez, is a quite acclaimed. Um, deconstruction of superhero movies from a time before they this current boom before dark knight before marvel before dc um well unbreakable comes out at a time that the article like so uh it puts it out sort of out there very well that it's like joel schumacher batmans were coming out of in the late 90s yes it wasn't avengers time it was like oh like what are they flinging at the screen this week but so we should say this article is uh zach vasquez's essay in the guardian and he'll come on uh later when we talk about glass but i think we're gonna go chronologically because trying to talk about glass without first talking about the other two seems as foolhardy as making glass you're in the emergency room in the philadelphia city hospital i'm gonna ask you some questions where were you sitting on the train against the window in the passenger car yes you're certain you were in the passenger car yeah where are the other passengers your train derailed too fast. A second train collided with yours after it derailed. The debris spread over one mile. Why are you looking at me like that? There are two reasons why I'm looking at you like this. One, because it seems you aren't the only survivor of this train wreck. And two, you don't have a scratch on you. So 2000's Unbreakable. Had you seen this movie, Chance, when it came out originally? I had never seen this movie, in fact. I saw this movie when it came out, and I remember being very disturbed by like a scene of violence, like sexual violence, and I like didn't really remember the details around it. And then, you know, 18 years went by, and I watched this movie again just this past weekend, and it's like really not in there. Yeah, what what scene of sexual violence? I think that like something about them being kidnapped in the house or something like as a 12-year-old boy like oh, really freaked me right. out. Yeah. Like the one crime he does solve. I mean, I guess there's implied sexual violence, Probably, but yeah. I remembered like the gore between like the like the mother obviously being dead. Like I remember that to be like right. more disgusting than it actually was, but maybe that was my threshold I, in 2000 for gore. I could gore. see this movie being pretty upsetting to a 12-year-old. Definitely. There's a lot of the little boy being very upset. It's very dark and kind of strange. Yeah. Yeah. But before we get too far down the road, so Unbreakable, if you haven't seen it, which if you haven't, why are you listening to this? You must care about Chance or myself with a deeper, intimate sort of fire. Um, (laughs) So you start with this weird prologue where you're in this department store in the 1970s. 1961. 1961. And this small baby has been born 
and it's like crying seemingly innocuously. And the doctor like shows up to this fitting room where they've like put this mother who's just had her baby. And like, it's revealed that all of his bones are broken. Uh-huh. He's never seen anything like this before. And then there's like a jarring cut to the Philadelphia of the present where David Dunn, some either like Lothario or like sad ex-husband man mm-hmm. boards this train tries to flirt with a sports agent and then he like everything goes white and he wakes up later in a world where everyone on this train he was just on has perished in this horrible accident and he's the only survivor and I'm looking at you because you don't have a scratch on you. Right. You don't, you haven't broken a bone. That's me of course doing the doctor played by um, the guy from house of cards. Yeah. Doug. Doug. Yeah. Yeah, that's me doing that impression. But yeah, and then the movie sort of goes along this path of Guy tries to figure out whether or not he is superhuman. Guy can't remember if he's ever been sick in his entire life. (laughs) Guy tries to remember like weird, but it's interesting. He like remembers formative things and they kind of change for him his memories about like what it means to be ill and what it means to be like hurt. Yes. Because he has this like memory of being hurt in this car accident from college that like sent him from being an athlete to being more of like a stay at home kind of dad who works security or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that's not really the truth. So I think the movie is sort of an interesting deconstruction of like the tale, like the tales we tell ourselves about how we got here. Well, let's also talk about the fact that it's literally just the sixth sense and they went as so far as to be like, what's Haley Joel Osment doing right now? And it's like, oh, we can't afford him, you know, because of his success from the sixth sense, which we made. Uh Let's get a boy who looks almost exactly like him. And they have so cast uh, Spencer Treat Clark, who we will not see again until Glass where he reprises the role That's as quite a name, Joseph Spence. Don. Well, it's, it's literally just Haley Joel Osment. It's Spencer Tree Clark. It's like, what three-name like, child actor can we get to, <laughs> to fill this role? What did I say when we were texting about it? Like it was like, we went to the discount rack at the Fascinating Eyes store or something. Right. Okay. But whereas like, Haley Joel Osment has grown up to look like very strange, I think that you know, Spencer Tree Clark is actually like a, a big handsome guy. He does seem like a big handsome guy with still like fascinating terrible actor. <laughs> so bad of an actor, in fact, that the script for Glass calls for him to actually deliver none of his like big speeches. It's just like picks up at times after people are reacting to something he said. Did you notice that? I think that I think that's spot on and like pretty curious <laughs> for a movie where it seems like maybe he should actually be sort of the character to carry the ball across the finish line and like no the movie takes that away from him absolutely but in this one he is the son of bruce willis's david dunn and he feels this real sort of connection to his father being super because like on the flip side of it all he has witnessed lately is sort of evidence of his dad being less than and not able to like hold on to a real job and not be able to like fix whatever is broken with his marriage to Robin Wright Penn. Which is definitely something. Yeah. But then like him being super, whatever that allegory is, whether he is in his mind or just in his confidence or in his actual body, mm-hmm. uh, 
he like kind of figures it out. But on the other side of this is Samuel L. Jackson's Elijah Price, who, if you remember from my description of the prologue, is the baby with all the broken arms. And he has this disease where if he even puts mild pressure, his bones just snap. He doesn't make the right protein or some other movie science. Right. So much movie science in this trilogy. But in his mind, like he's, he, what he's developed instead of his body is his mind. And he's f- sought his moral code from comic books, which he believes are like the cave drawings of the present yeah. to tell us tales about ourselves. Yes. Which seems which seems ridiculous. But with a factual basis. That's why he's so concerned with like David Dunn, are you the one? Are you the chosen one? So this movie, I think if you talk to like uh film nerds, will tell you is the best M. Night Shyamalan movie. I don't know if I agree with that. I do think I was surprised with like some of its artistry. Like you kind of you kind of cheekily De- described but we're somewhat cheeky about the first parts i think that mirror scene is really fascinating and i think that that tr- the scene on the train where you know the camera's going back and forth between the seats so you can see that sort of failed pickup is really patient and it reminds me a lot of you know when he sees Haley joel kind of like scamper into the streets of philadelphia like a little mouse in sixth sense and it has the, you have this feeling that you're like finding the characters where they exist um which really kind of lures me in as the viewer, like these stories of these fantastical people who are just a little bit different than us. The filmmaking supports their existence because you sort of, with a handheld cam, go find them in these unexpected places. It's well made. Certainly. And I I will not argue that this is not a well-made movie. And I think the script is also patient too. Yeah. Because it like asks more questions than it answers. And I think M. Night Shyamalan, for better or worse, like digs himself. When he does dig himself into holes, it's like ones of his own creation. Oh, he and wants it's to that answer so bad. He wants to answer everything. And it's like, you don't have to because the questions you're a- asking are like ones that we will be discussing like once we leave the film and like move on with our lives. Yeah. Like, don't worry about that. Like, don't worry about giving us the, he's dead. He's so fucking <laughs> dead. Like that's like, we get it. Like that works for the sixth sense. And like, but you don't need to repeat that. In fact, like it makes you a lesser director if that's like the only card you have to play. Which is what starts to go wrong, of course. Right. A couple things start to go wrong, but we can talk about that a little more later. I like the, the script is good too. Um, You know, Elijah Price has this line, um, instead of being like the world's a hellhole, we need a superhero, which is like the boring way to put it. He says, these are mediocre times. Like we're l- yes, he doesn't say these are bad times. It's these are mediocre times, which is nice. He's lo- we're looking for greatness because like we're bored and uninspired, not because it's like well, and it throws back to this like interesting things about this interesting thing about filmmaking like from the late nineties is yeah. that like for more or less like American filmmaking around that time like until nine eleven happens and there's like a real thing that we're frightened of again. Like American filmmaking was pretty mediocre. So to pull tricks on us, the audience, like a sixth sense, you know, sort of, it's almost like Elijah Price is speaking to the audience. Mm -hmm. You know, we need a movie where like our relatable heroes are, 
you know, spectacular because we are living in such mediocrity. Of course, like the filmic allegory then becomes the Avengers and all the Marvel and DC success. But this movie feels prescient in like what audience members like want from the people they witness on screen, I think. Sure. And leaves us with the question of whether or not that's good. The desire right. is there. Um, what do you think of, do you like Bruce Willis in this movie? I think he, this is like a, because you, you've seen him in Sixth Sense where he's like quiet and like smart and like thinking. And in this one, he's just like quiet. Yeah. You know, I don't really go in for like looper Bruce Willis. I, I, whenever he goes kind of sad to me, it feels like the erasure of personality and not like the adding of layers. It always feels to me like he's kind of hiding. He's effectively hiding that he doesn't quite have the range to do this. And sure. But I think the scene with the cans and the weights and all that, that, the physical performance of seeing this like seemingly like above average musculature man, like, like slowly build up to what is it like 500 pounds by the end or something? 700 pounds. It's all up to how much you think a paint can weighs, but a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He's like lifting a lot of weight and like the physical exertion that he's going through, but he like can do it. Yeah is super interesting how Willis plays that. And I think that's probably why he was cast more than, because the scene when the kid points the gun at him is a little painful. Oh, it's it's so weird too. Um, I want to go back to the weightlifting scene though, because I, that might be Please. my favorite scene of the movie. And it's like another key thing that I think that Shyamalan does early that he doesn't do later, which is also when you put us in the eyes and the subjectivity of children, which is something he does again in signs like these, these three big hits in a row. Um, you're just dealing with like a different like palette of observation. And so that scene is so powerful Cause like you have this weird performance from Spencer treat Clark, but you feel like he's commenting on this, um, this idea, this kind of like sad, but earnest idea that all kids have that their dads are superheroes. And this kid has been dealing of course with the destruction of that fantasy. It's like this, it's a really like a sad movie of having watched someone not live up to their full potential. And then the sudden sort of, you know, dream, come true of them suddenly being like, you can do it, dad. And that is fulfilling and kind of really reaches for something deep in me anyway. This is definitely like the dark version of the rookie. When, uh, (laughs) (laughs) when Dennis Quaid realizes he's got a 97 mile an hour fastball on his right arm. Yeah. And his kids are like, Oh my God, coach, you have to go pro. And then this guy like relieves, for the Blue Jays or for the Devil Rays for one season. But it's it feels like a similar kind of my dad is a superhero. The rookie. Look at you. <laughs> <laughs> nobody nobody ri- is writing that piece for The Guardian. Um, right. Was Unbreakable just the rookie? <laughs> and is Split just parent trap but with more uh, people? Um That'll be in the the literature they give you in the Criterion Collection for Unbreakable. Perfect. <laughs> or The Rookie. <laughs> yeah. Let's not be too presumptuous here. Um, <laughs> one of the things with M. Night is that you just, I just don't... Because after a while, you, you know the thing he likes is twists. And so this thing happens when you watch his movies where you don't trust him. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Like you don't trust the things you're seeing and because the universes are always like 15% askew, I get hooked. Right. I get hooked on that is things. a good percentage. 
I get hooked on things like David Dunn doesn't know if he's ever been sick. Like, what are you talking about? That's, you would know. That's crazy. Well, it also calls into question, like, what is sick and, like, what is illness and what is injury and, like, what is oh my. living in the human body. But maybe it's Continue, counselor. <laughs> Let's define every word in my argument. Um, no, I, I agree with you for the most part. And then, like, the... The, the connections, the albeit like disparate connections this movie has like with both the next two mm-hmm. uh, split in glass is like that's kind of cringy too. like to have a director cameo and be like, oh, do you remember that scene where you uh, felt me up for drugs? Yeah. When you didn't figure out that like part of your power looks forward and backward. Right. So, of course, what happens is that begrudgingly. David sort of moves closer and closer to Elijah as the movie goes on because Elijah's like, you should keep testing out your powers, man. Like you're the only, you know, there's been three big tragedies in Philadelphia in recent years, a plane crash and a fire in a hotel. And now this, and you're the only one to survive any of them. And you're like, Hey, why do you keep talking in dialogue about these three tragedies that didn't really happen? And of course it's because he caused them because part of his, twisted belief system about the world is that if he can create a hero he can ease the greatest pain of all which is not knowing who you are um and then he'll just become the the mastermind supervillain who created the hero which there are some dumb things about that twist as there's just dumb things about all m night movies um like how did he make the plane crash what huh I think it's such a weird selfless move for a guy who's clearly like fulfilling a selfish prophecy that he's decided for himself that it, it like just rhetorically doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It becomes an interesting idea though, like in taking apart this genre because I I was struck by the feeling that it's a total cliche, really not even just of superhero movies, but of like any villain with like a half-hearted Nietzschean philosophy, which is just like, you cannot exist without me. Ha ha ha. And like when people give that speech in movies, like I almost tune it out because it's such stock dialogue. But the idea of like, oh, I created you, but in turn now you've solidified me to sort of like work your, to back up into that cliche, I think is ultimately kind of smart and it's probably the best deconstruction that any of these movies actually do of this genre. Certainly. I mean, I wouldn't poke at it too much. I think for the terms of this movie, it like makes enough sense that the movie comes together in the end in a pretty watchable way. Yeah. Um, that being said, though, I think that the movie does sag a bit under the weight of its own sort of importance because it Mm -hmm. can't quite decide if it's a movie about Bruce Willis, like saving his family or if it's like a weird commentary on like why we need hero movies and hero entertainment. So why don't we remind the audience real quick about how we rate movies on the show and then we shall rate unbreakable. There is no ambiguity on Be Real. All movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings. Good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry. The second is pure entertainment. Good, good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. 
Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. <laughs> or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good good movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. Bad Bad is easy too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician turned actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicholas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. Bad Bad movies make chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or a Ward's Bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. They're anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings. I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China, or Stargate. It's all in the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says, But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. Where do you There's land, no my ambiguity friend? on being... <laughs> Oh no. The worst twist in the world would be if I just played the rating system clip for the rest of the show and we never came <laughs> back. <laughs> what if it was so like elaborate that it went for like minutes, like 45 yeah. minutes? A bad, bad, good, good, bad movie is yeah, when right. no one doesn't like it, but chance does, but the quality's okay and it has above a 50% of If Sarah of walks tomatoes. out of the room, it gets a. <laughs> if Lucy falls asleep. <laughs> But if Lucy wakes up and Sarah comes back, it's a good, good, bad, bad, good, good. <laughs> Got all that? Because <laughs> you're about to hear two heads explode. All right. Um, so what do you think about Unbreakable? I think Unbreakable is, at least of this group, the good goodiest. I would so agree. So I'm going to give it a good, good. I think I was surprised by how it stood up. And like the violence is very tame. And it's like not... That's scary, but it still is like a good movie underneath the not being scared because I like knew what the twist was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know how much I loved watching it, but but it is very compelling and it's very interesting to think about after the fact, which draws me back, which is kind of not to give it away too much, but it's sort of like the opposite sort of experience I might have had with these other two movies where I was very interested and then you chew and you chew and you realize that like maybe that was just a mouthful of sand. <laughs> Unbreakable is the opposite. So I'll go ahead and give it a uh, polite good good too. Though I don't think I love it as much as everyone else. No. I think it's a flawed movie in that like the twist that again like sustains this whole franchise for one reason or another uh, is the weakest part about it. Hmm. And like if it had been because I don't like the allegory that like I think Elijah Price should just be like this nutcase. Like, I don't think he should be 
like a super smart in the level to which we would call him a super villain. He's just the opposite of Bruce Willis. He's a man who's told himself a story to get over his scars. It's very curious the way that he creates these characters that initially have so much kind of, um, I, if not ambiguity, like implacability to them. And then in the end, we turn the page into like, they're, they're making superheroes. Superheroes are good. Even the bad ones are pretty, probably pretty good. <laughs> it's like, all right. right. It's so far from where we started. Anyway, let's move forward uh, into 2017 Split. Split. Yes. James McAvoy. It's Horde of Force. Yes. Um, on paper. Oh, is. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this movie after comes after The Visit which was M. Night's first like very small kind of like trying to regain any footing after After Earth. Um, but then Split was a huge hit uh, in January of 2017. It was. Uh, January is a- his month. MLK weekend is like M. Night Shyamalan to the end of the day. Yes. Um, this is a movie in which uh, James McAvoy plays... Uh, a man with uh, what dissociative identity disorder? Sure. Yeah, this movie opens like a fucking firework. Um, there's... But very much in the same way that Unbreakable kind of does too. Yeah. Where it's you sort of start with eighth grade or whatever, where this girl, like this outsider girl, like can't seem to fit in at a birthday party, and then gets a ride home. But like before the ride even goes from park to reverse. Uh, James McAvoy smacks dad in the back of the head and steals the car full of teenage girls. Right. Um, And then takes them to this sort of undisclosed lair and locks them all in a room. And the girls who are played by uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, who Who's like my new crush. She's in Thoroughbreds, one of our favorite movies of last year. She's great in that movie. So yeah, they think that they're going to be... Like the worst possible thing is going to happen to them, and it is. But but before yeah, it does, <laughs> but before it does, um, it's slowly revealed that this this very kind of you know stoic kind of weird nightmare of a marine figure, Dennis, uh, <laughs> is not going to hold the light for long because in come this other array of personalities that James McAvoy has, who, um kind of makes sense but are all obliquely referring to like something's gonna happen someone is coming and that something is the, the beast, beast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I lost i laughed out loud when like whoever's just like you don't want to meet the beast <laughs> yeah people talking about the beast in this movie is pretty funny there's a point where the therapist is like trying to placate him and she's like there can't be a beast <laughs> There's a point where the therapist is trying to placate one of the personalities and she's like, I can see how the philosophies of the beast would be very compelling. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah, the, the beast has a whole cult and they're just all members of the beast. Which cult. is basically the, the whole point of this movie and this character who becomes known in a comic booky way as the Horde is there's like this battle for these personalities who have the light which means they show themselves through the body of kevin um and then these ones who've been subjugated who like don't believe in the beast or think that the beast shouldn't be allowed to show itself um but then like dennis and patricia who is this sort of like mincing british woman and then hedwig she's like uh uh what's his name um 
Reynolds Woodcock's sister from uh, yeah, like Cyril, <laughs> like Cyril, yeah. Um, and then Hedwig, who's this like nine year old boy who is like weirdly sort of the uh, like the the glue that holds this whole thing together. He's like the the switch hitter between the two sides, and he's he's right. he's gonna help the beast find the light. Um, oh, he's obsessed with the, he loves the beast. Oh yeah, he's mad into that beast. <laughs> And then bury the uh, stereotypical gay one. Right. Yes. Um, and then briefly Orwell and Jade, but I don't remember which those were. Whatever. But I do remember when he turns into the beast. <laughs> yes, that's quite memorable. <laughs> what are we doing here? What the hell is going on? I was sent to get you for a reason. There's a flower on the pillows, a flower in the bathroom. Like, we're important. The only chance we have is if all three of us go crazy on this guy. Who is that? Maybe she can help us. We're here! Help us! We're here! Don't worry. He's not allowed to touch you. He knows what you're here for. He listens to me. But then the whole time you're getting flashbacks to uh, Casey, Anya Taylor-Joy's youth on this very disturbing hunting trip where it becomes clear that she was uh, repeatedly uh, molested by her uncle. Her uncle, who then becomes her guardian, guardian, like after her father dies. And we don't even know how that happens. So in the beginning, I want to ask you something here. And it's like a little spoilery. Please. But again, like, why are you listening to M. Night Shyamalan podcast if you don't want to talk about spoilers? <laughs> Um, it's clear from the beginning that she's going to have this connection with Kevin Wendell Crumb that the other girls are not because of this trauma in her past, right? Um, why does he, in the beginning, not put her out? Why does he think he's not going to have to put her out in the car when he takes over the car? You know what I mean? It's almost like he doesn't notice that she's there both when he's like around her, like in the car. And like, then later he like lets her do things that the other girls are like not allowed to do because I think they like see a common point in the other just senses it. that. Yeah. That she senses that this is not her first rodeo nah. and it becomes very clear that it's not, she like knows how to like have men not touch her and like where men are weak and like where like how to hide from things that she like sort of cryptically tells the other girls like when she's getting the Jessica Sula playing a Marsha uh, gets pulled into like the hallway by I guess it's Dennis's personality at that point right. and she shouts pee on yourself mm-hmm. and she does that and because it's been established that Dennis is sort of like a clean freak like that of course turns him off uh but it's such a weird like defense mechanism that you would know to say off the top of your head, like that'll get him off that you sort of know that she's done it. So what do we think of James McAvoy here? Uh, Man, I mean, a for effort. Yes. Uh, He's certainly trying a lot of interesting things, but like if you are only doing like this one character for one scene and it probably says in the script, like gay parody, then you're probably going to do that, yeah. I guess. Like, I, I don't know what you're supposed to do to come up with that many characters that clearly, like, really aren't written for him. I'm, I'm glad we're on the same page about this because I feel like it's good acting in the way that, like, 
Robin Williams cycling through 10 characters in 60 seconds in a comedy special is good Yeah, acting. I mean, it's like him doing the genie or something. Right. But like right in front of you and then like at the end the genie turns into this beast that like (laughs) eats human flesh it is but it's just such a lot of work for this sort of like hyperbolic hysterical take on like the most basic freudian read there is well i just think the he doesn't have his different characters don't have like teeth on them like what's so interesting to me about a performance like Ray finds in red dragon or something yep. is that he has these two distinct faces where he's like the same person, but like here he is when he's got like his mother's voice trapped in his head and he's like hurting himself. And here's him just like trying to get this film developed or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they're like, they're different personalities and he's like thought enough, but like he doesn't have like 10 to do. He only has two, but I just don't think that McAvoy's, take on any of them are truly like frightening yeah so i wasn't necessarily like scared through any of this movie red dragon i have it written down is like a weirdly accurate comp for this movie because you also have well you have the abuse and then you have the sort of uh like body dysmorphia thing um right which of course it would be body dysmorphia except m night insists that it's all true (laughs) There's so many things in these movies that, like, you just don't have to insist are true, M. Night, but it is. Yeah, it, to me, it feels like a like a really good job of an acting exercise. Um, Definitely. Better than J.L. is pretending to be cold in Escape Room. <laughs> I mean, but it is kind of like in that same acting school yep. as Escape Room, where it's like, yeah. you know, and now you're a little boy. Yeah, and, and now you're Cyril from uh, Phantom Thread. I like that this is one of your personalities now. It's like the acting teacher who makes fun of actors on podcast after podcast. <laughs> I mean, that's what we're doing here. Yeah, this is like a really ambitious, like fairly entertaining, like thing that doesn't quite add up to the work that went into it almost. Or the fact that it greenlit then a movie that would tie this and an otherwise unrelated movie to. Right, right, right. But yeah, I think this movie like is certainly, when it comes to like entertaining filmmaking, like is entertaining in that rare PG-13 kind of way. That's true. But I also, on the other side of nitpicky, will give it the kind of slap on the wrist for being very male gazy towards these like teenage girls for no reason, for no real reason. And it's like, it's already PG 13. Like, I guess that's what the teenage boys want to watch when they go to the movie on MLK weekend. But like, to me, it was like (laughs) sad thought. You'd think that like some of these women would like their hair would get a little bit more matted if they were in this room for what, two weeks or something. And, like, the yeah. one's already, like, peed on herself. And then, like, none of them seem to have brought, like, bras with them, even though they were just at a birthday party. So, like, I don't know. Its relationship to sex is is weird because it doesn't seem like Kevin or any of the personalities want them for sexual reasons. Except for that initial and grab at the beginning. From Dennis. From Dennis. But then she comes back and says, like, he just wanted to dance or something. Jesus. 
but then like molestation is like the triggering element underneath all this it's weird it is weird it's all about molestation thought out no it's just not thought out very well and speaking of not thought out i want to throw something out there like as we turn towards a rating for this movie and getting into glass let's do it so this movie obviously links the two movies together and the way it does that is by after the events of this movie go down, it's being reported on like a television in a diner in Philadelphia and being like, James McAvoy's characters will now be called the Horde. (laughs) Yeah. And then like somebody at the diner goes like, that kind of reminds me of that supervillain from 20 years ago. What was that M night Shyamalan movie called? And Bruce Willis out of nowhere comes in. He's just like unbreakable starring me and Samuel L. Jackson glass coming in two years. Right. Yeah. So like if they knew that already, why wouldn't the boy who's been abused be the boy he saves from unbreakable? Oh, interesting. Like he saves That's a little a good boy idea. who then ultimately like hands him that little, but wouldn't that trauma alone? And then uh, glass could be like, see, I made these two people. And then the ending of glass wouldn't be so fucking contrived. That is a better idea than what glass. Good job. Thank that you. That was good. Thank you. That was really good. But in terms of split, I think this is pretty quintessential bad good. Like, these are not good performances. This is not a good story. This is just like a well-made, dumb Hollywood horror movie for the dregs of January, February. Sure. With a a big star and some talent. Sure. Yeah. I'm with you. I wasn't, I just wasn't that, I just didn't feel like the payoff of the movie was like anywhere near like what, I or M Knight or especially poor James like put into it. Um, and again, I was sort of taken aback by like, it also reminded me of that weird ass Nicholas Cage movie, Vampire's Kiss. Oh, you know that movie? I don't not even know that movie. I mean, it was not uh, a hit at all, but it's like, oh, Nicholas Cage is in a movie from the past couple of years. It wasn't a huge hit at all. Oh, this is from like 1989. Oh yes. It's like this commentary on the AIDS crisis where like Nicolas Cage believes himself to be a vampire, but and has this weird relationship with his therapist, who's like sort of like accepting. So like, okay, so if you are a vampire, let's talk about this. But then the movie, which is a terrible movie, it's the one where he's you surely you've seen him do the ABCs thing, right? No, I don't. Th- it's I the don't, movie with that. I don't. I don't know. Where he oh he's a literary agent and he's like you have to file the things in the right place. You know A B C D. You haven't seen this. I have a hell of a YouTube video to send you. Amazing. Anyway, um, but even a movie as shitty as The Vampire's Kiss is like, is what this person believes about themselves true? And instead of leaving it open, Split is like, yes. (laughs) Right. And it'll it'll be called The Horde, um, which is just another thing that bugs me because the door is wide open in that weird ass therapist relationship. But Right. And it becomes less a movie about people. I think it missed a huge opportunity too with like the therapist. And we didn't really talk about her. Betty Buckley. Betty Buckley as Dr. Karen Fletcher. And those are pretty interesting scenes. And I think she's pretty good in the way that Ellen Burstyn is in Requiem for a Dream. Yeah. But she's so like. I like that reference. So yeah. And I think her, unfortunately, spoiler alert, death at the end, like 
kind of takes the wind out of the third act of this movie. Mm. I wanted more of like her feeling really bad about the fact that like that she had followed this thing so far down the rabbit hole, but like didn't believe the final thing was like ultimately like didn't believe she was ever in any danger. Yeah. is like totally crazy. Yeah, unfortunately, Betty Buckley just is a forerunner to Sarah Paulson as like being the the woman in these movies who just like has to say frontal lobe 25 times. And before we talk about glass, let's throw to sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by California College of the Arts MFA in writing program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means that you can write and paint, write and design, and write and make a film. You can also write and write. Look for their MFA faculty member Tom Barbash's novel, The Dakota Winters, out from Echo, and their alum, Adam Nemet, and podcast favorites, We Can Save Us All, out now from Unnamed Press. For more information, open an internet browser and type in www.cca.edu slash writing MFA. So we're going to set up Glass real quick before we talk to our guest, and then things are going to get... If this is the newer movie you haven't seen, things will get spoilery toward the end here. Um, so we kind of set it up in the beginning. It's 20 years after Unbreakable. Uh, David Dunn and Joseph are still out there running a security business while... But you know, Dad, D- <laughs> tertiary theory number three. David Dunn is still stalking around in his uh, poncho being a, a vigilante for good mostly um and he's been given the nickname the overseer which is not a name that i like part of his vigilanteism is is figuring out uh the latest move of of kevin wendell crumb right because it's only two like weeks a, after the the last oh, right. split that's right um so no time has this, passed at all we're like still in like the fallout of this girl being found in the philadelphia zoo with like two other eaten girls and this nut job with 24 personalities and in this kind of cartoony escalation from the uh anya taylor Haley lou uh abduction he's now abducted like four cheerleaders in uniform um who are like attached to this table and you're, they're clearly waiting to be devoured by the beast. They don't know that, but that's what you <laughs> they know. They know not of the beast. <laughs> no, but they soon will is what every fucking split character would say to them. Um, so yeah. And so David Dunn's just, you know, walking around Philadelphia waiting to touch the person who uh, <laughs> will show him where the missing, where the missing people are and stumbles across uh kevin in the form of hedwig i think they like bump into each other and his son joseph is back at the security thing kind of running point doing tech stuff being like go to this factory where there's brick dust around because like that would make sense because that was what you just saw on hedwig's sweatshirt um and they have a very entertaining showdown uh and quickly but quickly though that first act is abruptly cut off when they're both apprehended and sent to go live in this mental institution uh, in which Elijah Elijah Price is housed. And Sarah Paulson is their counselor, their nurse ratchet, if you will. Um, But instead of uh, forcing them to take lobotomizing drugs, she does the worst thing you can imagine, which is convince these men that they're not superheroes. (laughs) But yet has Um, things set up in their rooms to fight their powers. 
an excellent. So the world of Unbreakable and Split, I would argue, are that like 15% M. Night Shyamalan, like not quite real world, but like in the style of a real world. Whereas yeah. this one, like f- even from like the very Spider-Man sort of like, you know, he like kicks some kid's ass because he like made a YouTube video of like punching some dude. And then them ending up in this like weirdly colored may or may not have any involvement with the actual criminal justice system hospital. Right. But they've just been arrested for like kidnapping and like, what's his name? Split guy. Uh, He murdered many people. Right. Like, why is he just out and like, he wouldn't have a trial first before, like maybe the overseer like just gets a slap on the wrist. Cause he's just like kicking asses of good, of bad people. Yeah. And Elijah Price too. Like, okay. Like maybe his sentence is being served there, but I think it calls for the kind of it's contrived. And it, yes. the suspension of disbelief is so much more than the other two movies ask of you, even in a movie where it's like James McAvoy has got 24 personalities and one of them is the beast. <laughs> Suspend my disbelief further than that. Okay. <laughs> you can try. And of course, um, amid all this uh, convincing them that they're not superheroes and then spoiler alert, them still doing some pretty superhero things and Elijah Price certainly not abandoning the view he had from Unbreakable. You have, uh, again, a, a deconstruction now in 2019 of superhero movies with a lot of talking about like what these stock characters do and their relationships and how that movie, how that kind of movie moves forward into the second and third act. Well, this clearly um, was pitched as M. Night Shyamalan's Avengers. So what M. Night Shyamalan probably did after getting the money for this movies was like watch all the Avengers movies and just for some reason like focused in on that moment when like bruised and battered Tony Stark is like looking at Mark Ruffalo and he's like we don't do it because it's easy we do it because we have to <laughs> and like that's his like big takeaway was like moments like that and not these ridiculous and clever set piece driven action sequences that this movie like doesn't have and like aggressively doesn't have so much so as to like tell you what the set piece is going to be and then rip that carpet from underneath you when they don't end up at like Nakatomi Plaza or whatever. So you can hear our tone. This is a good time to go to the conversation with uh, Zach Vasquez on this very subject. Maybe this will all make sense if I explain who I am. My name is Dr. Ellie Staple and I'm a psychiatrist. My work concerns a particular type of delusion of grandeur. It's a growing field. I specialize in those individuals who believe they are superheroes. (laughs) Good for you. The big twist on today's show is that we have a guest and the second twist uh, is that I'm going to try to convince him. He was never a guest 
Uh, and we'll see if there's a third twist where it turns out this was his show. But we're very happy today to be joined by uh, Zach Vasquez, whose writing has been published in The Guardian, Little White Lies, Crooked Marquee, and a bunch of other distinguished uh, criticism and, and film writing websites. But today we're going to talk about a piece he just published for The Guardian uh, entitled Shattered Glass, Why We Need to Stop Deconstructing Our Superheroes. And uh, it hinges specifically on this new M. Night Shyamalan movie. Zach, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. It might be helpful for those of us who maybe like nodded off in critical theory too often. Real quick, um, can you bring us up to date on just the term like deconstructionism as you see it applied to, to genre films here? Sure. Well, deconstructionism is a school of philosophy. Um, it, it dates back to the philosopher uh, Jacques Derrida and his... His philosophy is a lot more complex than the way that it's used today most of the time. Right. And the and to be fair, the way I use it in this. When we talk about when we talk about deconstructionism, most of the time today is just anything that kind of breaks down the tropes or the uh, you know, expectations of a given genre or a given archetype or given character type, uh, in order to kind of like point out to the viewer the cliches or, or tropes or expectations that make those up. And then in so doing that, it it hopes to subvert it or to find some kind of deeper meaning in it. So mm-hmm. like Watchmen is the gold standard of comic book deconstruction. You know, right. it takes these character types that we all recognize and it totally breaks them down and, and reinvents them. And then in that finds a lot... Uh, deeper new meanings to them um, and gets us to think about them in a new way. I'm curious, and you do a great job in your piece of tracing this from sort of Burton, Batman to to present, but you also uh, really wisely sort of talk about, uh, you know, the the Ford, uh, John Ford Westerns and, and things that have been d- modes that we might think of as having not been deconstructionist that actually have been forever. So how or why do you see this how did it become the dominant mode of, of storytelling? Or, or maybe more simply, like, why do you feel like artists or creative people are so drawn to it? It gives them an ability to use these stories to talk about issues that are currently relative in regards to, you know, where we're at as a society, politics, um, culture, things like that. Like, so like Nolan's Batman movies you know, deconstruct a lot of the ideas of Batman and in so doing kind of bring up a lot of stuff that was very relevant during the Bush era and during the war on terror, you know, things like wireless, war, war, warrantless wiretapping or, you know, enhanced interrogation, things of that, like, that mode. Um, so that's one of the big reasons. I think I would argue that's probably the biggest reason. But then when mm-hmm. you get into even more openly deconstructionist territory like Glass like uh like Zack Snyder's films um even something like The Incredibles I think it's just because honestly filmmakers just wanted they want to use their movies to say something a bit deeper than you know was expected of the genre and one of the ways to do that is to break down the genre and to you know show to twist expectations and to to get audiences to think about you know, what they're watching rather than just inhaling the spectacle. 
before we get into glass, I wonder, cause you mentioned so many in your piece, um, what's a superhero movie in the modern era that you feel to have the most impressive take on deconstructionism? And then how about the least? Could you pick on the fly? Yeah, absolutely. So for most, I would say the first one, which the first full on one, which is unbreakable. Okay. Um, which I think is a great film and having rewatched before glass, I was blown away by how much it not only holds up. I think it's actually, uh, you know, aged better. Like it's, it's increased with age. Um, and then worst would probably be either Zack Snyder's Watchmen, which completely misses the point of its source material on a number of levels. Not just the way people talk about like, oh, it changed the ending. Like it misses so much about what that book is actually saying. Or Zack Snyder's Batman versus Superman. Which, or Bat, excuse me. <laughs> Snyder. Excuse me, Batman v Superman, Dawn right. of Justice. Um, yeah, Picky Snyder. So with Unbreakable, um, you know, that was the first movie that I can think of, arguably other than maybe Mallrats, weirdly enough, which isn't a superhero mm. movie, but does deconstruct that a lot. But I'm not counting that one. In terms of, like, actual superhero movies, um, that's the first one I can think of that actually, you know, brings up, explicitly states, like, here's what happens in comic books. Here's what we think of as comic books. Uh, mythology, tying tying it to mythology, which a lot of these movies do, you know, and or finding like pseudo scientific reasons to explain certain things and and bringing it out of mind. Um, and I think Unbreakable is is really cool because it was doing it at a time when you know superhero movies had not entered the mainstream yet. They that was the year that they did with X Men being mm-hmm. you know the big one. And there's a few precedents before it, like Blade was a was a you know big sleeper hit. And that led the way and and whatnot. But, you know, before that, they were still considered like, oh, comic book movies. Don't tell anyone it's based on a comic book. Uh, So for Unbreakable to come out the same year and just openly do that, I think, is really impressive. And especially in the way that it kind of seems to – I don't want to go so far as to say predict 9-11 because that's, like, you know, ridiculous. But it it does – you know, it it mentions the public – psyche at that time kind of being on edge and people needing hope and it ties that directly to uh acts of terrorism and it it draws a link between the two and then you know a little over a year later you have those attacks and then following that the superhero movie craze just you know keeps getting bigger and bigger and i think there is a direct link between the state of the national psyche following that and the public's you know desire for these big superheroic movies um so i think that in drawing those things together unbreakable stands as the best but also just because it's such an original take it's really weird and funny and dark and moody Mm -hmm. so it actually breaks down these superhero tropes and puts them in a new framework that you know even up to this day we haven't really seen another movie superhero movie that feels quite like that and then finally it's because it ends on such an ambiguous note um you know it, it ends on like a twist in which is a really dark twist and the look on the hero's face you know when he realizes right. what glasses it's just such a it, it it honestly questions like well is it worth it is this like need for heroics worth it when it's tied so directly to you know disaster and catastrophe and pain so i think that one stands as the best for all those reasons there you go so let's get in one of the things uh you got into so much in your guardian piece uh not so much into Glass, probably because the the piece came out before the movie. So can we talk about Glass a little bit? 
Sure, yeah, um, absolutely. Um, I really wish I had liked Glass more. I, I sure. went in, you know, very hopeful. Uh, like I said, I love Unbreakable, and I really, really love Split. Um, so, I, you know, I went in as a fan hoping it would, you know, blow me away. And I just, I got to say, like, this piece sprung out of me walking out being like, look, for I didn't hate Glass. Um, I thought the first act is very entertaining. It's very good. I think it's consistently funny. I don't think people give M. Night Shyamalan enough credit for being consistently funny. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, but the second act, it just drags watching these characters moping around a uh, insane asylum without any real drive to, like, escape until the third act is really weird. It just kills the pace. And then the third act is such a weirdly staged... Yeah. It feels so small, but not in, in, in a way that's intentional. Like, it just feels clunky and bad. And throughout the entire thing, the the whole, you know, superhero deconstruction stuff where you have characters going on and on and on about it, it, it just, it at this point, it just feels like, okay, you not only did that way better in Gla in uh, Unbreakable, but movies have been doing this now since then, and just, just enough. And the, and the piece came out of, like, just please, God, no more of these superhero <laughs> breakdown movies. Sure. What um, we can get into specifics a little bit. I, I mean, I I think if the way this will land in the podcast, I think if people will have wanted to bail for spoilers, they can. So, uh, I mean, I felt like the worst line was where Samuel Jackson was like, "And now it's time for like what they call in comic books to be the showdown." Like the showdown is a term that we've used in climactic fighting. It's not inherent to comic books. But what else jumped out to you is kind of uh, flat about the deconstruction stuff like that. Stuff like him saying, you know, when he's telling his mother whatever he's saying as he's dying, like this. It turns out this was an origin story after yes. just things like that, where it's just like, okay, please calm down on this. Um, I, yeah, it just, it just felt so obnoxious at times. And then ultimately at the end, the message that it's, that it's saying is really weird, especially when compared to Unbreakable. Unbreakable, yes. like I said, it, it ends on an ambiguous note morally, you know, because is mm -hmm. it worth it to have these heroes if what it takes to create them are these acts of, you know, malicious terror? At the end of Glass, it, the, it, it goes to the same message that most of these go to, which is like, Humanity needs its heroes. Yeah, it's a rubber stamp. Yes, and in doing so, it, it turns Samuel Jackson, you know, the character of Mr. Glass, into a hero. It turns him into, like, no, he was, I mean, it's one thing for him to have been right intellectually, but it basically says, like, yeah, everything he did was worth it, and he was a good guy. Same with, uh -huh. uh, same with you know, uh, uh, James Wendell Crumb. Who, granted, is I think that's the one thing is they continue. He's he's that character continues to be interesting. I really like the way that he is painted as a classical tragic monster. So I'm a little more forgiving on that one. But just the way that it basically ties Bruce Willis's character to them and says like they're all equally heroes despite the fact that they you know two of them have been murdering people. <laughs> uh -huh. And it also just feels weird because it's like they send the message out to all these people and they're watching people fighting but you know you know the age of you know special effects and you know deep fakes and everything it's like is this is this supposed to revolutionize the world like a guy pushing over a van on video like right. it just feels clunky and awkward and yeah I, you know i respect m night Shyamalan for his uh attempts to to go big you know thematically but i just i don't think he pulled it off on this one 
and I wondered too. I mean, you talked about the the movie starting to drag for you in the second act, but I I I, I felt like if it wanted to like really make good on the deconstructionist approach, it opened doors in the Sarah Paulson trying to convince them that they're just you know three delusional people. It opened a bunch of doors that it was ended up just being too scared to to walk through. Like if you want to go full tilt like psychological excavation of like what kind of person believes this about themselves like that's that's interesting but then you know it just sort of i think the 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 phrase that jumps out to me from your piece is that we end up back in a place of i think you said empty intellectual posturing yeah yeah i I totally agree um you know if it had been if the twist, because, you know, you're always expecting a twist in a Shyamalan movie. And this one was a little bit less twisty. It tried to play like it was a big one, but I, I don't really feel like it It was. Right. It felt like an Ocean's Eleven-style twist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but if they really wanted to go for something like that, I think it would have been interesting to be, you know, at the end it saying, like, no, they're not superheroes. They're just delusional people. Like, that would have been something interesting. That would have opened up a new door. And, and then you could have still asked, like, well, even if that's the case... Does that make their, you know, does that make them any less heroic or any less like special? Yes. So you could have had it both, but but in the end, yeah, it just reverts to the same message that, you know, all of them end up reverting to, um, which is, yeah, again, like why superheroes are necessary, and that's that's my biggest problem with this type of deconstruction, is that it feels a lot of times like it's in there honestly just for self affirmation, like filmmakers break these tropes down and then at the end use them to justify why they're telling the stories in the first place, which I don't think is necessary because I don't want to come off as an anti-comic book movie superhero person. I, I'm, I'm a fan of a lot of these, um, but I, I kind of get sick of the need to constantly, you know, tell me why I should be watching these when I, I don't have a problem just watching them. Sure. Yeah. I, I think the new Spider-Man is really good at that. That's something of a, the, into the Spider-Verse is, it deconstructs it on a formalist level, you know, like bending the realities and bringing in like what you think of as like, oh, here's a cartoon pig one or a noir one. But it's not really interested in like, you know, doing that out of a need for like seriousness and like seriousness. It's just doing it on a really cool formalist level. And then mm-hmm. the movie itself, while not necessarily saying anything particularly groundbreaking, is, you know, a really fun, emotional, heartfelt movie. And like if you're going to do stuff like that and you're going to come back to that same message – at least do it in a way that is, you know, fresh looking and fresh feeling, whereas, you know, Glass just doesn't, I, I don't think there's that. Even even its most ardent defenders, I don't think can really say it looks particularly good. I would agree. So this might be a sort of, it probably is an unanswerable question to leave the conversation on Zach, but if we are, if at least some of us are going quite weary of of deconstructionism or wrote deconstructionism as an approach to these movies um what is after it you mentioned uh into the spider-verse but what is an appropriate reaction is it sort of like uh just almost ignorant zeal and earnestness is it um is it a even more cynical version of glass that admits we don't need superheroes um what what what's a prescription you got anything as far as you know what comes next I don't think anything does because the Western eventually morphed into like from deconstruction to revisionism where you get, you know, these really dark yeah. 
you know, really interesting, like Clint Eastwood movies, something like Unforgiven, something like High Plains Drifter, and then, you know, num numerous other ones in the 70s, especially New Hollywood, where they're taking on, like, you know, Vietnam, you know, by proxy and, right. and, and issues like that. And then eventually they, the Western had just splintered into like a thousand different really interesting subgenres. You get your acid Westerns, you got your existentialist Westerns, you know, you got you got space Westerns. Um, I don't really see superhero movies going that route just because of the profit motive inherent to them. They're, they're corporate owned IPs. The, the, the basis of franchise filmmaking is to make as many as possible for as much money as possible. Um, and also the fan base just tends to get really upset anytime movies don't revert to that. Those, those movies don't revert back to the message. Like I, I'm not going to go so far as to say that like star Wars, the last Jedi or Iron Man three are that much particularly different in what they're saying than those other movies, but they do break those characters down a bit more mm -hmm. than the other ones. And they don't quite put them back together. And I mean, the vocal, you know, the vocal backlash to those movies has shown that like yeah the fans aren't really down for it when you when you don't revert to it even while yeah. both of those made billions of dollars so it won't necessarily stop filmmakers but I, I don't see it leading into any new you know truly like radical territory unfortunately well that's all right well we didn't have to solve it here today we'll just continue on our way and these movies will keep existing uh zach thanks for your time man thank you I had a great time thank you very much this is not a cartoon this is the real world no way and yet some of us still don't die with bullets some of us can still bend steel i've been waiting for the world to see that we exist thanks zach for explaining pretty well why i think we don't like this movie very much uh, but let's uh let's finish up here by kind of saying some further stuff about well i mean are there good parts of glass we, we were both unsure for several days how we felt about it right i think this movie is certainly entertaining and i'll be upfront about that mm. like i sat through it and like probably laughed at some inappropriate moments along with the rest of like my snooty uh <laughs> the press screening version of this audience yeah i think again third act problem is so of course they like break out of the the hospital, but you think that because they've been showing you this image of this brand new building that's been digitally added to the Philadelphia skyline in like sort of wide shots, you think that's going to be the thing. And even Elijah says like, we're going to fight you on top of the thing to like show people that you're real or whatever. Like that's his goal is to show people that it's real. Uh, yeah. But what actually happens is he stages like a pretty anticlimactic, violence-free kind of one-sided battle on like the grounds of this mental hospital that are incidentally right. recorded by the hospital's security cameras that have been installed mm -hmm. by the shadowy organization that Sarah Paulson works for, the Four Leaf Clovers. Which tries to get rid of superheroes. They first have to by keep order. Them. Yes. Wouldn't you? Okay. So let's break this down even further. We're here. We're doing sure. a film podcast. If that was your thing, you only need to get rid of the Elijahs of the world because the super people don't seem that interested in being super people and don't even point. know that they are super people. So what's the point yeah. of like killing them? Which, spoiler alert, everyone dies at the end. 
yeah. was the point of that? And to just do it all like with two cop cars and this like very low stakes, like what's the allegory, man? I get the allegory of the other two movies and I get the bigger question of like what we're supposed to think about our lives after we leave the theater having viewed one of these films. But for this one, I was like, what? It's back no everything than- up on the cloud. Is that the takeaway <laughs> from this movie? The charitable outcome here from the rating that I'm about to give it is that it might be interesting to see M night going forward, write some movies that he doesn't direct because at 19 years later, he's just completely lost that interest in the shot between the train seats. Yes. He's, these movies are about ideas and he's no longer concerned with like, but split even making. cares about like movie making like a little Split bit is, I think a well shot movie. Yeah. I the think, beast running under that light at the end is really interesting. Yeah. And like uh, the prologue to that movie where you like are James McAvoy, like stalking this car and like the slow tracking shot and like just the shadow of him, like entering the car and then you see like right. the food on the ground and that's the only indication that the father's been taken or whatever. Like that's some good filmmaking, but this one just doesn't care. It's like establishing shots, sh- security store, uh, director cameo uh, talk about not wanting to go for a walk I haven't seen people talk about this but the direction of the final set piece is just bad yeah it, you um, know, have no sense of like where anyone is and then like the him getting drowned and him getting broken like at the end it just looks like stupid nobody also is like in transit you have like six different groups of people standing in a circle waiting to like step forward as though part of a chorus line and like deliver the feeling that they have about what's happening while everybody else freezes stock still. So the next person can do their thing. And the camera, yeah, the camera captures like police officers and doctors and orderlies who are presumably trained to handle these situations, just stand there and like gawk at like how weird James McAvoy's maybe or maybe not superhero is like running on all fours. Right. Like he could be like, this is just a stunt double or like, this is not, you don't know he's the beast. In fact, you've been telling yourself that like the beast wasn't a real thing. Why are you not chasing him? But spoiler alert, they know the beast is a real thing. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I would be interested to see some like written Shyamalan movies going forward, but like he's just, these ideas are too hefty and he doesn't have that, you know, that real like fresh out of film school verve that is just all over Sixth Sense is just completely gone. Um, but the the mandatory twist is still there and it's just like it's never been less satisfying. This is going to be a bad, bad for me. Yeah, I thought I might give this like a charitable bad good. But I think you're right. I think it's bad, bad. If there's still something that I can sense in his bag of tricks, it's that he tricked me for several days into thinking that furiously trying to figure out what was going on in a movie was the same as liking it. <laughs> I think that's what I feel is like, I'm still glued to these movies. I'm still like engaged by them. Cause like, but like I said, I don't trust him. I don't think he's doing anything that's like objectively good directorially i'm just like i made my list of things i liked and things i didn't and the things i liked column is just so empty <laughs> like, well, i hope he like goes back to i hope Shyamalan goes back to like some original ideas 
like if he was a braver filmmaker, like he could make a horror movie like Jordan Peele. Yeah, you would think so. You'd think like his natural sort of provocateur kind of filmmaker, like grasping at straws thing would be like, let's make a movie about race, but like with an M night Shyamalan twist, like, you know, when you're this far down, you better go like for all or nothing at this point. He's only far down in like a few people's assessment. This movie's going to make a lot of money. It's on track to make 45 million opening weekend and, We'll see. No more of these movies, though. Jesus. All right. I think we took it all the way apart. Yeah. Very good. We're going to leave it here. We're not going to put it back together. Deconstruction only. No reconstruction. That's our motto. Um, as of as of the 75th minute of this podcast, yes. Um, so, folks, please do find our other shows uh, on the Playlist Podcast Network. We've done some really fun ones. We did uh, Get Out of the Room thrillers with Escape Room and Rear Window and Panic Room. We have uh, an episode coming up later this month about our favorite Gene Hackman villains. I am so excited to talk about that slate of movies. Samesies. Yeah. Uh, And do check out the other fine shows on the network. The Over Under Movies Pod just did a a very argumentative, entertaining episode about their uh, their 15... Uh, most underrated movies of the year. So that was an entertaining one. Uh, but like and subscribe. And if you want old stuff from us, check out berealpodcast.com. It is a very pretty site uh, designed by a very wonderful man in Michael Todd. But uh, otherwise, Noah, I now uh, tactlessly turn it over to you to tell people what the final twist of this episode was. I've actually been chance the whole time. and Is that why all your opinions were so smart today? Right. We, you thought it was the other person, but listening this whole time, we've actually swapped our identities. Perfect. I've been living in Portland with Sarah, the therapist, for years. Chance mm-hmm. is rising in book publishing here in Brooklyn, New York. That sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy. I'll talk to you next time. Can't wait. <laughs>